Well, good morning. Welcome to Theological Equipping Class. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here at the Parkway uh, Church. Thanks for listening. This semester, we have been talking about apologetics and worldview issues, and, uh, and then now we've moved into world religions. And this morning, we're looking at the religion of Islam. Whether you realize it or not, your life has been drastically affected by Islam. Some of that's positive. For example, uh, Muslims have been responsible for various technological medical advances. They even discovered coffee, which is a great thing. Some of your familiarity is owing to historical and political realities, such as the Crusades or conflict in the Middle East, and in particular, Israeli-Palestinian tension. Some of that is profoundly negative. Global terrorism, the Boston Marathon bombing, 9-11, Benghazi, Bin Laden, all of these sorts of things. Even many of our movies and television shows assume some level of familiarity. And it's not surprising that Islam has played such an influential role in the global community considering that about two billion people consider themselves Muslim. That's about one out of every four people on earth. But even though Islam has played such a huge role in world history, most Christians are by and large rather ignorant as to what the religion actually Entails, and that's unfortunate because as we've mentioned a number of times this semester, familiarity with a worldview or with a world religion is helpful for us as we seek to carry out the commission to make disciples of all people, of all nations. If we're to love our Muslim uh, neighbors, if we're to be passionate about missions and evangelism, then we should have at least some awareness of their existing worldview. Let me tell you up front, though, that this class is not a class on practical strategies for serving your Muslim neighbor. Such classes can be helpful. I have a friend who runs a ministry that specializes in just that. That's a good thing, but that's not the intent of this class and this particular teaching. Rather, the intent is to help you understand Islam so that you might be better theologically and not just practically prepared to engage your Muslim neighbor. It's like Paul reading and quoting pagan literature to understand the surrounding culture and to more clearly communicate the gospel. So we want to understand the various worldviews and world religions so that we will be able to carry out the goal of making disciples. And so we'll see this throughout the next uh, few weeks as we're studying other religions. What good is it to tell a Hindu to believe that Jesus is God if they just think that that means that they can add Jesus to their pantheon of gods? Likewise, what good is it to just simply tell a Muslim to believe in Jesus? Muslims generally believe in Jesus. They believe he was a Messiah. They believe he was born of a virgin. They believe he lived a sinless life, that he's alive in heaven today and will come again at the end of history. They believe in Jesus, but they don't believe that he's the son of God or that he died for your sins or anything like that. So it's a great thing to know That if you're having a Muslim over for dinner, that you shouldn't serve pork chops and beer. But unless you know what they believe about God and about Jesus and about sin and about salvation, you'll just end up changing your menu, not actually communicating the gospel to change their life. So with that in mind, here are the questions that we want to answer this morning. Question number one, who was Muhammad? Question two, what's the Quran? Question three, who is Allah? Question four, what makes someone a Muslim? Five, what's the deal with Sunnis and Shiites? Six, what are the major tenets of Islam? Seven, what are the five pillars of Islam? Eight, what's the deal with Islamic terrorism? And nine, how does Islam compare to Christianity? Those are the questions we want to answer this morning. 
First question, who was Muhammad? You can't understand Islam without understanding who Muhammad is because Muhammad isn't merely God's instrument for bearing revelation. He's not merely the vessel, but he's also the ideal model for emulation according to Islamic theology. So Muslims revere not only what Muhammad wrote, but also what he did. Though Muhammad is not worshiped, he is revered as the greatest and final prophet. In fact, it's illegal in Islamic tradition not only to depict Allah, but also the prophet. That's why there have been major violent responses when someone has drawn a cartoon or a caricature of Muhammad. So who was he? Well, his full name was Abu al-Qasim Muhammad ibn Abad Allah ibn Abd al-Mutalib ibn Hashim, which is quite a mouthful. And he was born in 570 AD in what is today called Saudi Arabia. If you look at Saudi Arabia on a map, you'll notice that it's geographically centered between all of these once great empires. It's almost directly between Egypt and Italy and Greece and Israel and the Persians of Iran and the Assyrians and Babylonians of Iraq. And as a result, it was a very diverse land of traders and raiders with no united religion. So various tribes worshiped various gods, influenced to some degree by the Semitic and Babylonian and Greek and even Christian beliefs, that were introduced along the, the, the numerous trade routes which traversed the uh, Arabian Peninsula. So Muhammad was born into this very religiously diverse environment. Now, not much is known of his early life. According to tradition, he was orphaned at a young age. His father died before he was born. His mother died when he was six. And it's generally believed that he grew up rather impoverished until he became the business manager for a wealthy widow whom he later married. And then whenever he was 40, he experienced what Islamic tradition calls the night of power and excellence. This is the seminal foundation for the religion of Islam. To understand Islam, you need to understand this particular event. While in a cave near Mecca, an alleged angel appeared to him and commanded him to, quote, recite. And following that was the first of many revelations that would continue until his death two decades Later, these recitations were eventually compiled in the Quran, which means recite or the recitation. Now, Muhammad was initially so troubled by this vision that he had that he actually thought that he was insane or that he had been visited by a jinn, which is an often evil uh, spirit in Arabic tradition from which we get the word genie. By the way, it's really fascinating that Muhammad originally thinks that this is maybe a demon. Because, as Galatians 1, 8 through 9 says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. If you were to go on reading Galatians, you would see almost every distinctive Islamic teaching explicitly condemned. Galatians says that Isaac was the promised child of Abraham. Islam says Ishmael was. Galatians says that God is father. Islam says God has no son. Galatians has strong hints of the Trinity. Islam explicitly denies that God is Trinitarian. Galatians says that Jesus died for our sins. Islam says that Jesus never died, much less for our sins. Galatians says that man is depraved. Islam has no doctrine of original sin. Galatians says that man is justified by faith alone. Islam teaches salvation by 
works. Again, Paul said, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach another gospel, let him be accursed. It's almost like Galatians is a treatise on the dangers of Islam written 500 years before Islam. So if only Muhammad would have listened to his gut that it was a demon that he had experienced. Unfortunately, he didn't listen to this original feeling, but he told his wife about the visions and she hears them and, uh, and she convinces him that what he had seen was not a demon, but was a vision of the one true God. Thus, Islam was born with Muhammad, its true and ultimate prophet and messenger. So as a prophet, Muhammad begins to preach in the streets of Mecca. And for a decade, he did so with rel- relatively few converts. Instead, the common response was skepticism. While most of the residents weren't concerned with the vast majority of his revelations, his claim to be the prophetic voice eventually undermined Meccan tribal authority, and thus he found himself met with increasing persecution. And this uh, Meccan resistance eventually forced Muhammad and some of his followers to flee the city. In 622 AD, he migrated to Yathrid, which was later named, uh, renamed Medina, uh, which means the city of the prophet. And this event, which is Muhammad's uh, hijra, his, his uh, migration, marks year one of the Islamic calendar and the creation of the Islamic community called the Ummah. And so in Medina, a theocracy was established with Muhammad as his chief arbitrator. And it's here that Islam began to take on uh, various uh, cultic forms and practices, uh, such as weekly services on Friday to distinguish uh, it from Judaism, which celebrates on Saturday, and Christianity, which celebrates on Sunday. You also have prostration during prayer, calls to prayer from the roof of the mosque, the regular collecting of alms, and so forth. And so you really have the institution of Sharia, the way of life. That begins to emerge, and, and Islam transitions from a religion with social and political implications to a true state religion. Now, following this period of development, There was a time of struggle for supremacy as Mecca and Medina became engaged in a series of battles and raids. And and this contest culminated with Muhammad marching on Mecca in 630, severing its trade lines. With Mecca now under his rule, he quickly began a campaign to unify all the adjacent Arabian tribes under his own leadership. And he gave opponents three options. They can either convert to Islam They can submit to Islamic authority and pay tribute by taxation, or they can die by the sword. Most chose the first option and simply converted to Islam. However, just two years after taking Mecca, Muhammad developed a fever and died. According to Google, the cause of death was impairment of well-being, which is a good reminder that Google isn't always the best source for helpful information. But since his death was so unexpected, The community was shaken and this loss signaled the beginning of this major division in Islam regarding the succession of leadership, a schism eventually resulting in the modern distinction between Sunnis and Shiites. We'll talk about that shortly. But in spite of this division, Muhammad's death also marked a period of rapid rapid Islamic expansion as the somewhat consolidated tribes leveraged the weaknesses of the declining Roman and Byzantine and Persian empires. And within a century of the prophet's death, Islam had evolved into its own empire. So that's the importance of the history and in particular the person of Muhammad within Islamic tradition. What's the Quran? 
We mentioned before, the Quran literally means recite or the recitation. And the Quran is the central religious text of Islam, which Muslims believe to be the unedited revelation from Allah, verbally revealed through the, uh, the, the uh, angel Gabriel while Muhammad was in a trance-like state. And this quote-unquote revelation occurred gra- uh, gradually over a period of approximately 23 years, concluding only whenever uh, Muhammad died. And after his death, a number of his companions who knew the Quran by heart decided to collect the book in one authorized volume so that it could be preserved. At least that's how uh, the tradition goes. Now, Christians have a sacred book. We call it the Bible. Muslims have a sacred book called the Quran. But the way those books are understood in each religion is very different. In Islam, the book itself is revered. Not merely the message of the book, but the book itself. And this reference has a number of implications. For example, you must be ritually clean to handle it. You can only handle it after a, a ritualistic cleansing. Additionally, a, a Muslim would never just throw their Quran on the floorboard of their car and spill coffee on it as a Christian might do. In fact, many Muslims wrap a copy of the Quran in a special cloth to keep it from dust when not in use. And they store it on the highest shelf in the room so that it's always above the head as a, of a, as a sign of its ultimate authority. In fact, certain passages of the Quran are said to have magical powers. One is even said to cure scorpion bites. I imagine they mean scorpion stings because I don't know if scorpions are big biters, but that's the point there. So it's perfect, it's eternal, it's unchangeable at least as it's, as it's originally giving. The ideas, the language, the style, uh, according to Islamic teaching, cannot be reproduced. That's why official Islamic teaching is that you shouldn't translate the Quran. Right? So technically, if you can't read Arabic, you have never read the Quran. If you've read it in an in English translation or a French translation or whatever it might be, you have not actually read the Quran because according to Islamic teaching, the Quran cannot, by its very nature, cannot be reproduced, cannot be translated. Which is why even though there are a number of different dialects of uh, uh, Arabic spoken throughout the world, all write in the same distinctive style because of the enduring uh, sort of reverence for the Quran. So the Quran is viewed as a miraculous act. In fact, it's seen as Muhammad's only miracle. And it isn't really a revelation of the nature or character of Allah, but rather of Allah's will or his guidance. That's a fine but important distinction. Allah himself is beyond comprehension in Islamic theology. So he himself isn't revealed, his nature, his character, but instead his will is revealed. And as mentioned, it was revealed over decades and always directly to Muhammad. We've talked before about how similar this is uh, to uh, other religions, this idea of, uh, of personal revelation to singular individuals. This is a very similar thing that we see throughout most religions, but how different it is from Christianity. Nearly every other religion relies on the vision, dream, or experience of one solitary, unique individual whereas the historical events that found Christianity were witnessed by hundreds. Muhammad was the only witness to these actual visions that were later compiled into the Quran. Now, like the Bible, the Quran is arranged in chapters and verses. The chapters are called surahs. By the way, I might be pronouncing these Arabic words incorrectly, if so, forgive me. There are 114 of them. 
And they're arranged by length, not chronology of revelation. And the verses are called ayahs. There are about 6,000 of those. In total, the Quran is about four-fifths the size of the New Testament. And technically, it doesn't abrogate, it doesn't nullify the Old Testament or the New Testament of the Christian scriptures. This is again a subtle but important point. Islam officially recognizes the prophetic authority of Adam and Noah and Abraham and Moses and Elijah and Jonah and so forth. And even John the Baptist and Jesus are recognized as being prophets. But, and this is a big but, it is believed that Jews and Christians have perverted the original messages of each of those prophets and that therefore the Old Testament and New Testament that we have today are corrupted and thus untrustworthy. So Muhammad is the final prophet and the Quran is the final revelation given to clarify what was corrupted by Christians and Jews. So you see in the Quran, uh, in the 21st Surah, we did not send before you, O Muhammad, any messenger, but we revealed to him, none has the right to be worshiped except I, therefore worship me. In other words, what was revealed to Jonah and Abraham and Adam and so forth was this message. None has the right to be worshiped except I, therefore worship me. But Jews and Christians have corrupted that message. Or in uh, Surah 5, people of the book, by that it means Christians and Jews. Now there has come to you our messenger, making clear to you many things that you have been concealing of the book and effacing many things. Now, this is a really interesting apologetics issue because according to the Quran, God's word cannot be corrupted. It cannot be perverted. And Allah himself has promised to preserve it. In uh, the Quran 15.9, we have without doubt sit down the reminder and we will assuredly preserve it. Or in the Quran 6.34, no man can change the words of Allah. I mentioned before I have a buddy who's a former Muslim who now runs a ministry that trains Christians and evangelizing Muslims and he says that this is one of the most helpful tactics in conversations with Muslims by pointing out the inconsistency of saying that the prophetic message of Allah can't be changed, that the prophets of the Bible were actual prophets and yet also saying that the Bible was changed or corrupted. If Isaiah and so forth were actual prophets, then how could their prophecies be changed if God's word cannot be changed and he promises to preserve his word? There's an inconsistency there. But that's the Quran according to Islamic theology. Who is Allah? That's the next question that we want to, uh, to address. Well, the word Allah is just the Arabic word for God. Historically, even before Islam, that was the word that Christians or other Arabians used to refer to God or gods. If you're speaking Arabic and want to refer to God, you would typically just use the word Allah. Now, Arabic and Hebrew are both Semitic languages. Semitic means descended from Shem, one of the sons of Noah. So there are lots of similarities between the languages of Hebrew and Arabic, as there are similarities between Italian and Spanish, both being Romance languages. So we see, in addition to that, we see for, for this reason, there's this semantic overlap between the Arabic Allah for God and the Hebrew El or Elohim, also meaning God. But it's important to note that in Islam, the word Allah isn't God's name. Just like in English, God isn't God's name. 
God's name is Yahweh as he reveals it to Moses. Or you might have heard it as Jehovah growing up, although most scholars today think that Jehovah is just a mispronunciation of Yahweh. But in Islam, Allah has no name. Or at least he doesn't give us his name. Why would he? Remember, the Quran isn't the revelation of the nature or character of Allah, but rather of his will. So even if he had a name, we wouldn't expect him to actually give it. But he's referred to as Allah more than 2,500 times in the Quran. So I'm going to just use the word Allah as his name for ease of reference. Henceforth, when I say Allah, I don't mean God generically, but God as conceived as Muslims. And when I say God... I mean not Allah, but God as revealed in the Old and New Testaments, the Christian God. So Allah is the sole God according to Islam. And this is particularly important considering the context of polytheism that we talked about in ancient Arabia. Most of the, uh, the Arabic tribes of that time would have been polytheistic. And so the fact that it's so strongly monotheistic uh, is a very telling trait. So it's very uh, monotheistic. In fact, in the Quran, it says, and your God is one God. There is no God but he. So like in Judaism and like in Christianity, Islam is strongly monotheistic. But at the same time, it's intentionally contrasted with the God of the New Testament. Uh, According to Surah 5, Allah is explicitly not a triune God. He is explicitly not a trinity. According to uh, chapter 2, Allah has no begotten son. So you see an intentional contrast with the Christian God. And as far as attributes, Allah is said to be transcendent. He's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's creator. He's judged. Uh, He's judge. I'm sorry. He's concerned with mankind, but he's transcendent and thus unknowable. Again, the Quran reveals not Allah, but his will. Because God himself, Allah himself, is unknowable. And we see his sovereignty and his power reflected in the declaration, God is most great. Allahu Akbar. Most of us are familiar with that as a cry of war in uh, jihad with terrorists and so forth. But that's much more commonly associated with Islamic calls to prayer. Now, interestingly, Allah is depicted as merciful and compassionate in the Quran. And most uh, Muslims would actually view him as being that. The problem with that is that those attributes don't mean the same thing as when Christians use them. Allah is merciful, but he's merciful to those who merit mercy, which from a Christian perspective is absolutely nonsensical. How can you merit something which is by its very nature and by definition unmerited? Not only that, but Allah's mercy is in tension with his justice. Unlike in Christianity where God is said to be simple, there is no competition between his Attributes. So you see lots of similar words used to describe Allah as are used to describe the God of the Bible. But what Islam means and what Christianity means by those words is very different. As Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word, I don't think it means what you think it means. So that's Allah according to the Quran. What is it that makes someone a Muslim? Well, let's begin with the difference between the term Muslim and Arab because that's important. I doubt any of you listening would make this mistake, but it's important to note nonetheless that Muslim is a religious term. A Muslim is someone who adheres to the religion of Islam. Arab, on the other hand, or Arab, is an ethno-linguistic term. An Arab is a member of the people group who speak the, uh, uh, the Arabic language. Not all Arabs are, are Muslim, not all Muslims are Arabs. 
Arab is a term similar to Hispanic or Spanish. It has to do with ethnicity or language and not religion. So with that in mind, what does the word Muslim mean? Well, both the word Islam and the word Muslim have a combination of the consonants S, L, and M. The Arabic root SLM means submission or acceptance or surrender. Again, since Arabic and Hebrew are both Semitic languages, there's some similarity there. The SLM root in Hebrew means something similar to surrender, acceptance, or, or submission. It means peace. It means wholeness, wholeness. Uh, as in the word shalom or Jerusalem, the city of peace. By the way, you see this in the traditional Arabic greeting, uh, assalamu alaikum, peace be upon you. So Islam means surrender or submi- uh, submission. And a Muslim is anyone who or anything that surrenders to the true will of Allah. So Abraham and Moses and the other prophets are not thought of as Jews or Christians, but rather as Muslim and that they submit to Allah, though again, Jews and and Christians have simply corrupted their message. How does one become a Muslim? Really simply, you just simply recite the Islamic creed or the confession. It's called the Shahada. We'll see that in uh, a a moment. The Shahada goes, there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is his messenger. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. If you recite this creed with the intent of converting, you are automatically considered Muslim. Some say you have to do it around at least one other person, but that isn't universally held. So you recite the creed and you're in. And then you go about doing the major tenets of Islam, which we'll talk about shortly. But first, let's turn back to the distinction that we mentioned earlier between Sunnis and, uh, and Shiites. What's the deal with Sunnis and Shiites? Well, well, Islam is broken up into two broad groups. You have Sunnis and you have Shiites. And those share similarities, they also share dissimilarities. It's kind of similar to the way that Christianity has historically been broken up into three different broad groups, Eastern Orthodoxy, Roman Catholicism, and Protestantism, which share both similarities and also dissimilarities. And so of the 2 billion Muslims in the world, about 85% are Sunni, about 15% are Shiite. You might also see that spelled S-H-I-A, like Shia LaBeouf. And though Sunnis are in the majority worldwide, Shiite Muslims are in the majority in a number of countries like Iran. If you've ever wondered why Iran can't seem to get along with others, much of it has to do with the fact that Iran is predominantly Shiite whereas most other countries in the area are Sunni. Why are they called Sunni and Shiite? Well, Sunni is derived from the phrase al-al-sunnah, which means people of the tradition. The tradition in this case refers to practices based on what Muhammad said or did or agreed to or condemned. On the other hand, in early Islamic history, the Shiite were a movement, literally the Shiite Ali or the party of Ali. They claimed that Ali was the rightful successor to the prophet Muhammad as leader or imam of the Muslim community following his death in 632. So to understand the difference uh, between the two, we need to mention what we kind of glanced over before. On June 8th, 632 AD, Muhammad died from impairment of well-being, but there was an immediate power struggle leading to this division between these two groups, somewhat similar to uh, to the way that an argument over the primacy of the pope or the Bishop of Constantinople was at least one contributing factor to the schism between Roman Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy. According to Shiites, 
The appointed successor was Ali ibn Abi Talib, who was Muhammad's cousin and son-in-law. According to Sunnis, the rightful successor was Abu Bakr, uh, one of uh, Muhammad's first converts and his closest companions. And, uh, and he was actually elected leader by a democratic election. So the bottom line is Sunnis, following the tradition of the period, thought that the caliph should be chosen by the community, while Shiites believed that the office should be passed down only to direct descendants of Muhammad. By the way, in order to not imply that Muhammad made a mistake in not declaring a succession plan, uh, many would simply say that whatever their particular tradition teaches was what Muhammad intended and that the other side simply suppressed that. It's kind of like in the movie Gladiator. The emperor clearly chooses Maximus, but Joaquin Phoenix kills the emperor before that plan can be made known. So if you were a Shiite, you would say, obviously Muhammad revealed that the Shiite way is the correct interpretation and Sunnis have simply suppressed that and then vice versa. So Sunnis and Shiite have, both have proponents all across the spectrum, from secular to fundamentalist, they have generally similar fundamental beliefs and practices, but they also have various differences in doctrine and ritual and law and theology and religious organization. One particular difference that you might see is that Shiites tend to invest their leader with a degree of infallibility, which is why you will see something like the Ayatollah with, uh, of, of Iran with near complete uh, power. While Sunnis tend to invest authority not uh, just in the leader, so much as in the community. So it's somewhat uh, similar to the divide between Catholics and uh, Protestants in that regard, with Catholics placing more authority in, uh, in the, uh, the Pope, whereas Protestants more stressing the priesthood of the believer. All right, that's the differences between Sunni and, uh, and Shiite. What are the major tenets of Islam? One of the things you need to know is that in general, Islam emphasizes deeds over doctrine. What a person does is more important than what he or she believes, which makes sense in that justification by faith is not an Islamic doctrine. You've probably heard the term Sharia law before. I mentioned it earlier even. Sharia is the moral code and religious law of Islam. There are two primary sources of Sharia law, the precepts set forth in the Quran and the examples set by uh, Muhammad uh, in the various collections of tradition, including the Sunnah, S-U-N-N-A-H is a word that uh, it refers to one of the collections of authoritative traditions of Muhammad. And Sharia law classifies all behavior, any single human behavior into uh, one of five uh, types or grades or categories. You have those that are obligatory, those that are recommended, those that are neutral, those that are discouraged, and those that are forbidden. So obligatory, recommended, neutral, discouraged, and forbidden. Every human action belongs in one of these five categories. The problem with that is that there's no universal consensus on a great number of behaviors given variations among divorce, diverse forms of Islam. As with most religions, there are disagreements among adherents on how to interpret the various uh, different religious literatures and traditions. In Islam, the dispute revolves around the interpretation and application not only of the Quran, but also the Hadith and the Sunnah, which refer to traditional beliefs regarding the words, actions, and approvals of Muhammad. So today, most countries that would be considered uh, Islamic 
adopt only a few aspects of Sharia law, while a few countries uh, attempt to uh, apply the entire code. So those are kind of the major tenets of Islam. And despite diversity within the religion, all forms tend to center around what are called the five pillars. These acts constitute the foundational works of a Muslim. To be a Muslim is to perform these particular deeds. So what are the five pillars of Islam? Well, the first one is the shahada. We saw that earlier. It's the confession. That's what shahada means. The shahada is there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. We talked about that before. By reciting this creed, a person converts to Islam. It contains the two foundational beliefs of the Muslim. The unity of Allah, there is no God but Allah, and also the authority of Muhammad, and Muhammad is his messenger. The unity of Allah, by the way, is foundational to Islamic faith. In fact, the Christian understanding of the triunity of God is considered shirk, S-H-I-R-K, which is an unforgivable sin. It's formed from a root meaning uh, share, Shirk is used broadly to represent any form of blasphemy from idolatry to polytheism and that it implies that Allah shares his glory with another. To equate any person or thing with the singular Allah as Christians do in confessing the deity of the Son and the Spirit denies the Islamic understanding of monotheism. So that's the shahada, the confession. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. The second pillar of Islam is Salat. This is ritual prayer. So five times a day, Muslims face Mecca in prayer. The prayer typically consists of a profession of the words Allahu Akbar. Again, uh, Allah is most great, followed by bows and prostrations and recitations of the Quran. This form is then followed by the Shahada, which we said before. And then a greeting of peace is repeated twice. So a typical prayer would include something like this that you see from the first surah, the first chapter of the Quran. All praise belongs to Allah, Lord of the universe, the beneficent, beneficent, the merciful and master of the day of judgment. You alone we do worship and from you alone we do seek assistance. Guide us to the right path, the path of those to whom you have granted blessings, those who are neither subject to your anger nor have gone astray. So Salat, this ritual prayer, may be performed almost anywhere provided that the Muslim faces, quote, the direction. That is, in the direction of Islam's most sacred mosque in Mecca, uh, Saudi Arabia. Speaking of the sacred mosque, faithful Muslims have to pilgrimage at least once to go and see it. That's another of the five pillars called the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca. So each year millions of Muslims undertake the journey to Mecca from wherever they are in the U.S. and France, wherever it might be. Uh, you take a journey to Mecca. If you're a faithful Muslim, you will do this at least once. Some people with the means would do it more than once, but all devout Muslims are expected to make the pilgrimage at least once in their lifetime. It's an event filled with various ceremonial activities, beginning with a visit to the Kaaba. What's the Kaaba? Well, that's the, the, the large black cube-shaped monument in the middle of the great mosque in Mecca. This is the holiest site in all of Islam. This is what Muslims pray toward every single day. It's uh, this, this uh, black cube-shaped monument. It's 50 feet high. The base is 30 feet by 40 feet. And the site itself predates Islam. It's originally, well, use was for a polytheistic shrine that was used by the various uh, Arabic tribes. But Islam teaches 
that Muslims merely recaptured what was originally theirs. In fact, many of them would believe that it was originally constructed by Adam or given to Adam by Allah and then was later renovated by Abraham, though the exact sense of that is somewhat ambiguous in Islamic teaching. So that's, that's part of the Hajj, the pilgrimage to Mecca to go and see the great mosque and to go and to see the Kaaba. And the Hajj is officially ended by a three-day feast of sacrifice, though many pilgrims will then continue on to Medina to visit the mosque and tomb of Muhammad. The fourth of the five pillars of Islam is Psalm, which is uh, fasting. So each Ramadan, which is the ninth month of the Islamic calendar, all Muslim adults are expected to abstain from food, drink, and sexual activity from dawn to sunset. That's a time for reflection and discipline ended by a three-day feast of the breaking of the fast, Id al-Fitr, a holiday in which uh, many countries uh, exchange gifts and those kinds of things. So that's psalm, fasting, that's the fourth pillar. The fifth pillar is zakat, the giving of alms, uh, which was originally attempting to address economic inequalities, so a tithe of accumulated wealth and assets. By the way, not merely income, but a tithe on your wealth and assets is expected. And the practice of zakat or giving of alms differs greatly in various contexts. In some countries, it's governmentally imposed. In other areas, it's more voluntary in nature. In addition, what those alms are used for is diverse. It's providing for the needs of the poor. It's providing for the zakat collectors themselves, fighting for a religious cause. Speaking of fighting for a religious cause, some people would say that jihad is actually the sixth pillar of Islam. Many maintain that the Islamic duty of jihad is a sixth pillar of the religion. Now for the Western mind, When we hear the word jihad, that typically only conjures up the meaning of holy war, but that's actually only one of the three uses of the term. The term jihad essentially means struggle. In addition to the militant use of the term that you might hear on the lips of a terrorist, jihad is also used to refer to the inner struggle of the individual Muslim to submit to Allah's will. And also the communal struggle to improve the Ummah or the uh, Islamic society. But let's talk a bit about jihad in the more militaristic sense, given that that is uh, what has influenced many of the events we named above, from 9-11 to Benghazi to the Boston Marathon. So I wanna talk a little bit about Islamic terrorism. So what's the deal with Islamic terrorism? For many people, when they think of Islam, the first thing that they think of involves terrorism, which is unfortunate. They've never, they might have never actually met a Muslim, but they're familiar with ISIS, or Al-Qaeda, Hezbollah, the Taliban, Hamas, and the PLO. Speaking of the PLO, in 2007, I went to Israel for the first time, and on the trip, we drove into Bethlehem, which is actually under Palestinian and not uh, Israeli authority. And as we were walking around, a guy with an AK-47 and an official uh, army uniform came up to us and told us in broken English uh, to follow him because he was going to take us to see Arafat. For those who don't recall, Yasser Arafat was the leader of the PLO, which is the Palestine Liberation Organization. Now, anytime a guy with an AK-47 in a foreign country tells you to follow him to go see an alleged terrorist, that's kind of scary, but it was even more disturbing because this was four years after Arafat was said to have died. 
So now I'm thinking, he isn't really dead. Somehow I've stumbled into this international mystery. I'm about to be kidnapped or worse. But instead, I was led into a little room where a huge picture of Arafat hung on the wall and they offered the opportunity to take a picture with Arafat for a small price, of course. Now we're all aware of Islamic terrorism, but here's the question. Is terrorism an essential implication of Islam? Or is it instead a disturbing perversion of Islamic tradition? Is Islam inherently a religion of peace or of war? Is jihad merely internal or is it also external, all right? This is a huge boiling pot today. Not only is this a religious question, but political as well. Those on the political right tend to favor the idea that Islam has these inherent militaristic tendencies. Those on the left reject that and say that, Islam, that terrorism has more to do with socioeconomic or other cultural conditions and not religious. So which is correct? But before we really address that, I want to mention that there are th- at least three different groups within Islam. The first group are the fundamentalists. They're a minority, but they're a very vocal minority and that this is the group from which terrorism comes uh, forth. So their voices are heard in riots and bombs and stabbings and shootings and so forth. That's the first group. Again, a minority, but a very, very vocal minority on the global scene. The second group are the modernists. This is the overwhelming majority of all Muslims. They don't agree with the fundamentalists, but many also don't strongly repudiate the actions of the fundamentalists. The third group are the progressives. This is again another minority who recognize the inherent tension within Islam. And so they understand that Islam needs to change if it's to engage the modern world. So those are the three groups. So are all or even most Muslims terrorists? Absolutely not. Do most Muslims actually support terrorism? Absolutely not. But is terrorism and is holy war consistent with traditional Islamic teaching? Here's the fairest way I know how to answer that. The calls for violence within Islam are such that one either has to say that this type of jihad is acceptable or would one would have to say that there is just inherent inconsistency within Islam. The one view I don't think you can hold is that Islam forbids violence and holy war and terrorism. So I think that the Quran and other Islamic tradition teaches that holy war, including even terrorism, is acceptable. Although I am very grateful that most Muslims are inconsistent on this point. While it's true that there are calls for mercy, I think that the overall thrust of Islamic tradition would lead one to conclude that terrorism and holy war are consistent with the teachings and the example of Muhammad. Again, this absolutely does not mean that most Muslims think that terrorism is okay. Most would say it is not We need to remember there is a difference between what Islam actually teaches and what most Muslims actually believe. So you do have those who think that mercy and peace verses in the Quran take priority over the sword and war verses. They point to Muhammad who said after returning from war, we return from the lesser jihad to the greater jihad. The lesser jihad is the war. The greater jihad is this inner struggle to submit to God's will. But that just says that the inner jihad is within is greater than the lesser jihad. It doesn't say that the outer jihad is forbidden. In fact, it can't mean that since Muhammad had just fought a holy war. 
Or they might point to the difference between defensive and offensive warfare. And they might say that, uh, that Islam teaches that you can fight in a defensive way, but not in an aggressive way, an offensive way. So they would point to a surah like in uh, uh, 2.190, uh, which says, fight in the way of Allah with those who fight you, but aggress not. Allah loves not the aggressors. But then you would ask the question, but what is aggression? Many would make the argument that invading the land with television or drawing the prophet is aggression, which then justifies a response. But the point is that many Muslims would say that Islam is a religion of peace. Others, those who consider themselves mujahideen, which means holy warriors, think that the sword and war verses have abrogated, have canceled, have nullified the mercy and peace verses. In fact, mainstream Islamic jurisprudence continues to maintain that the so-called sword verses have abrogated or canceled or replaced those verses in the Quran that call for tolerance, compassion, and peace. So here are a few examples of those sword verses in the Quran. In uh, Surah 4, so let them fight in the way of Allah who sell the present life for the world to come and whosoever fights in the way of Allah and is slain or conquers, we shall bring him a mighty wage. 476, the believers fight in the way of Allah and the unbelievers fight in the idol's way. Fight you therefore against the friends of Satan. 495, Allah has preferred in rank those who struggle and fight with their possessions and their selves over the ones who sit at home. 860, to strike terror into the hearts of the enemies of Allah and your enemies and others besides whom ye may not know but whom Allah doth know. 929, fight those who believe neither in Allah nor the last day, nor hold the religion of truth, even if they are of the people of the book. In other words, even if they're Christians or Jews, until they pay the tax with willing submission and feel themselves subdued. So again, you have options. If you're a Christian or a Jew, you will not be killed if you are willing to pay the tax with willing submission or to convert. You have those options. You can die, you can convert, or you can be willing to accept Muslim rule and pay taxes. Or 9-5, but when these months prohibited for fighting are over, slay the idolaters wheresoever you find them and take them captive or besiege them and lie in wait for them at uh, every likely place. But if they repent and fulfill their devotional obligations and pay the zakat, then let them go their way for God is forgiving and kind. Now those are passages from the Quran, but in addition to all of these passages, a strong argument can also be made from Muhammad's example. Remember, he's not only a vessel but he's also the model. He's the one that you look to, the, the ideal that you strive toward to emulate. It's really hard to square saying that he practiced holy war and that you should emulate him with the idea that you shouldn't also practice holy war. Again, I'm simply glad that most Muslims are inconsistent on this particular point. As for the example of Muhammad, one of the six major authoritative hadith collections claims that the prophet Muhammad undertook no fewer than 19 military expeditions, personally fighting in eight of them. So as a result of all this, Princeton scholar Michael Cook observed in his book, Ancient Religions, Modern Politics, that the historical salience of warfare against unbelievers was thus written into the foundational texts of Islam. So there you go. Are most Muslims terrorists? Absolutely not. 
but neither is it true to say that Islam is inherently a religion of peace. At worst, it explicitly teaches holy war. At best, it is internally inconsistent. By the way, some people say that this inconsistency is similar to Christianity and the conquest of Canaan that you see in the Old Testament. We talked about this a bit when we talked about whether or not God commands evil acts, but simply, they are apples to oranges. Israel was commissioned by God to judge a particular people at a particular time in a particular place. There is nothing in the Bible, though, that suggests that we are to continue that conquest by the sword today. But no such distinction exists in the Quran. Speaking of similarities and dissimilarities between Christianity and Islam, let's end with this. How does Islam compare to Christianity? Well, there are so many surface similarities. They both share some degree of reverence for the Old Testament. There's lots of similarities to Old Testament Judaism. Many of the Old Testament characters are also mentioned in the Quran. So are many of the ritualistic laws, like the importance of washings and the avoidance of pork. Both Christianity and Islam trace their descent in some sense to Abraham. Both are monotheistic. Both talk about the importance of Jesus. Both stress the importance of moral responsibility. But the differences are stark. We talked about a few of those in the beginning when we talked about the book of Galatians. Galatians 1, 8 through 9. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Islam truly is a contrary gospel. In fact, I would say it's no gospel, but in the Galatians sense, it's a contrary gospel. When it comes to bibliology, they think that the Bible is not the word of God because it's been corrupted. When it comes to theology proper, Allah is decidedly not triune. The father isn't father and has no son. The claim he does is the height of Islamic blasphemy or shirk. Let me put this as clearly as possible. Muslims and Christians do not worship the same God. We worship a God who is Trinitarian. They explicitly reject that God. What about Christology? When Islam, Jesus is a prophet and he was sinless and he did miracles, but he's not the son of God. He's not God himself in the flesh. He was never crucified. If the Quran says Jesus was not killed, nor was he crucified, but so it was made to appear. Allah simply took him up to himself. Jesus never died and thus was never resurrected. Interestingly enough, they believe that Jesus will die eventually as it says in the Quran, peace is on me the day I was born, the day I die, and the day I rise alive. But if Jesus didn't die on the cross and was instead raised directly to heaven, how can he say, peace is on me the day that I die? Well, because according to uh, Islamic tradition, Jesus will return to the earth once more and then he will die again before the day of final uh, resurrection. That belief is nearly universal among Muslims. So that's Christology proper. What about Hamartiology, the doctrine of sin? Well, in Islamic theology, there is no original sin. And as we've said before, if you have a deficient doctrine of sin, that always uh, results in a deformed doctrine of salvation. Without an actual fall, salvation is reformulated as mere moral effort. And a substitutionary savior is seen as superfluous. 
Islam teaches that humans are born spiritually neutral, perfectly capable of obeying God's requirements or Allah's requirements completely. And that they remain this way even after they've personally sinned. They, they aren't corrupted by it. They still have an opportunity. They're still a blank slate. So the need for humanity, therefore, is not salvation, but instruction. Hence, Islam has prophets, but no savior. What about soteriology? Well, there's no death and resurrection of Christ. There's no justification by faith. Instead, there's justification by works. I think we could keep going for a while, but you get the point. It really is an entirely different gospel, an entirely different religion, an entirely different faith. They have many of the same words, many of the same external traditions, but those mean entirely different things. Last week, I was very angry at Jared because he used the brilliant illustration of a heresy bingo card. I wish I would have come up with that. We see that here as well. Islam is guilty of Arianism, of various Christological heresies, of Pelagianism and so forth. That's a really bad bingo card. In Galatians, Paul says that anyone who preaches another gospel is accursed. And so Muslims stand under the curse of condemnation. Fortunately, the good news of the gospel is that it is explicitly for a cursed people. In fact, we're all cursed apart from Christ. As Galatians 3 says, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. So Christ redeems us from the curse by himself becoming cursed. So more than anything, Muslims need the true gospel of the one true triune God and the death of his son for our sins as revealed in the inspired word of God who reveals not only his will but also his character and nature so that all who believe in him may have eternal life. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for this opportunity for us to better understand another religion not just so that we would uh, have an answer to some sort of trivial question, but so that we might better understand our Muslim neighbors, so that we might be better prepared to defend Christianity, and so that we would be better uh, prepared to share the gospel and, uh, and to engage in missions and, uh, and so forth. I pray that there would be a revival among uh, the, uh, the Muslim people, Lord, that uh, many of them would have their eyes and hearts uh, and minds opened to the glory of your Son and they might recognize that he is not merely a prophet, but he is the Son of God come in the flesh for us and for our salvation. I pray that you'd help us, Lord, to be faithful. I pray these things because you're good and you do good. And so I pray it all in Christ's name, amen.